0: Good morning. As always, it is wonderful to be together on the Lord's Day, gathering to worship our, our risen Savior. If you're new here, you don't know who I am. My name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here at Hollis Center Church and a member of the preaching team. And man, this has been a, a busy week. That's why I keep hearing from everyone, is that it's been a, a busy, busy week. And, uh, but we're, we're here to kind of take a breath, and we're going to be here in the moment, and then we're going to go back to our busyness uh, after our time together with Neighbors Helping Neighbors. So we're going to be in Acts 20 today. I've entitled this message, Final Words. If you are following along in one of the black hardcover Bibles that we have around the sanctuary, it's page 874, page 874. I don't know what page it is in the rest of your Bibles, but final words are important. Final words are, are very important. Now, now, we don't always get that experience. Uh, when, someone, when someone passes away, we don't necessarily always get that, that final moment that you see in the movies or you have in a book. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But when someone knows that this is their last chance to say something, usually what they say is important. They usually aren't wasting that breath on, on some meaningless joke, but they're spending it to say what they think is most important. The song that comes to mind is the old Johnny Cash song, Give My Love to Rose. Some of the lyrics go like this. It says, give my love to Rose, please, won't you, mister? Take her all my money, tell her to buy some pretty clothes, tell my boy the daddy's so proud of him, and don't forget to give my love to Rose. Won't you tell them I said thanks for waiting for me? Tell my boy to help his mom at home. Tell my Rose to try to find another, because it ain't right that she should live alone. I'm not trying to be a downer. In fact, Dorothy skips this song now every time it comes up on the CD because it's kind of a sad song. But in those lyrics, we see this guy that the songwriter has encountered who is dying, and we see that he greatly values his family, and he greatly values his family's future. He wants his son to know that he's proud of him. He wants his wife to be taken care of and to continue on and find happiness. Now, today in Acts 20, we are going to see some of Paul's final words. Now, he isn't about to die, but he is leaving Ephesus for the last time. He is never going to see these believers that he has labored with and lived with again. And so there's a lot of value to be found in his final words to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. So, if you haven't already, please turn to Acts 20. Kind of our, our main idea today is that Jesus radically changes our value system. Jesus radically changes our value system. Luke seems to be marching the story ahead to its next chapter. So, in uh, chapter 20, starting in verse 1, we kind of have some travel uh, d- uh, some tr- travel recap. It says... After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Titius and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, some of you got to see that map, and so you can kind of see where they're moving around. One of the big things we see in these verses is that Paul did not work alone. That as as the years progressed, Paul's team got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we see this this intersecting team of Christians from different places, different ethnic backgrounds that are united in their love for Jesus and united in their mission of sharing Jesus with others. So you have Luke, you have the guys that are listed here, you have the Apostle Paul, and their ministries are intersecting as they're traveling around the Roman Empire, making Jesus known. And something interesting happened while they were staying with the believers in Troas, starting in verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer until daybreak and so departed. And they took up the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So the believers are gathering, it says they're gathering on Sunday to celebrate the Lord's table and, and to also have a message. So even back, all the way back then, Christians were gathering on Sunday rather than Saturday. And I love that, the way that Luke describes this scene, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's this upper story room. It's probably packed with people. There are lots of lamps And it's late at night, and Paul just won't stop talking, okay? If some of you have ever thought that I've preached a long sermon, I have never gone to midnight, made a guy fall out a window, and die, okay? I can at least say that. In fact, in seminary, they made us read a book called Saving Eutychus. It was all about preachers, how to not preach a boring sermon so people don't fall asleep and fall out of a window. I thought that was a clever title. Just imagine, right? Maybe you go to the window because there isn't any space, or you're trying to get some fresh air because it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer. And there are all these lamps just lulling you. This guy won't stop talking, and boom. Two observations in this story. One is that this really parallels well uh, Peter raising Tabitha from the dead in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And also, it's really interesting that this miracle takes place in a context of the Eucharist. And that the believers are gathered together to enjoy the Lord's Supper, to remember Christ's resurrection, to remember his death, burial, his sacrifice. And it's in that moment that this miracle takes place. I think that's really cool. So we have more traveling, continuing on in verses 13 uh, through 16. Says, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Milletine, and sailed, uh, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. We already know that Paul has plans to eventually make it to Rome, so he wants to really book it back to Jerusalem to be there for the Feast of Pentecost, and then he's going to try to find his way to Rome. Those are his plans. Now, before we continue, have you ever had a friend who's just a little bit weird, family member, tends to rub people the wrong way. And so when you're about to introduce them to someone, or maybe you've invited them to something, you tell the people you're with, you're like, you kind of debrief them on who they are, right? You kind of give them the warning. You go, okay, so, so they're a little bit odd. Here's how you need to handle that. Maybe don't bring up this subject. If you do, they're absolutely going to lose it, right? Sometimes you warn people about other people. So here in, in Paul's speech, To the Ephesian elders, he is going to warn them about people they're going to meet. These are not weird cousins or awkward friends, but these are false teachers that he is going to warn them against. And in his final words, we're going to see his care for the church, encouraging uh, these Christians to live well and serve Jesus, even under the threat of false teachers. So continuing in verse 17, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts out this kind of, this final speech to them saying, look, you guys know that I was with, I was with you for three years. We know that based on the book of Acts. I labored with you. I suffered with you. And all of it was for one, re- one reason. That was to share the gospel with both Jews and Reeks. Both faith and repentance. And these are kind of the two essential halves that we have of what it means to follow Jesus. As we put our trust in him, we recognize that we cannot save ourselves in our own. We cannot please God. But Jesus is the one who perfects us. He is the one who forgives us by his complete work, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then putting our trust in him. Christ transforms our lives and the natural product of our faith is to turn away from that which was destroying us. That which made us incomplete and turning toward the one in his ways that make us complete. Faith and repentance. That's the message that Paul suffered for in Ephesus. But then he has to share with them some difficult news Starting at verse twenty-two, he says, "And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel." of the grace of God. If you knew something bad was going to happen to you in a certain place, would you go there? I think the answer for most of us would be no, right? If you had some certainty that the next time you go into Portland, you were going to get stabbed, you probably would never go to Portland, right? Or if you knew the next time you crossed the Saco River down into Buxton, All right, a dolphin was going to jump out of the Saco River, eat your ear off, you'd probably never go over that bridge. Right? I think so. Unless you're really desperate. And and yet Paul says, look, uh, the Spirit is pushing me onward. Like, I know I have to obey God in this journey. And I know I'm going to suffer every step of the way. It's not going to be easy. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know it's not going to be enjoyable. But he says, look, I'm not here to preserve my life. It's not about that. I just want to finish my race. I just want to finish the course of my ministry. I want to, to complete the orders that God has given me. That's all I care about, no matter what the cost And now he gives them more difficult news. Starting in verse 25, he says, And now, behold, I know that none of you you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's, that's a hard message, right? Like, he is, he's lived with these people for years. And then he went away for a little while, and he's come back, and he's saying, look, you're never going to see me again. You're never going to see me again. But he says, look, I'm innocent. Like, I've done what I can to equip you. I've, I've done what I can to help you succeed in your race, in your ministry. He'd given them the whole counsel He said, I basically taught you everything you need to know. I've done my part. Now it's just your job to walk in faithfulness. Continuing on, there's actually more difficult news that's kind of fueling this charge that he's giving them. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he's talking to the leaders of the church here. And he tells them to pay attention to themselves and also pay attention to the flock that has been entrusted to them. And those are both very important. I think we could you know, look back um, through history and just experiences that we've had in church. And there are times when a leader, a, a Christian leader, might be very good at taking care of others. You know, you hear it said, man, they were a wonderful pastor. They were there when I needed them. They, they were such a good preacher. And yet... They were not watching their own heart. They weren't watching what was going on in their own mind and they fell into false teaching or or they had an affair or some other just moral corruption that just damaged the church, right? They were looking after the flock, but maybe not themselves. But also the flip side is true. Some of you may have experienced a situation where Christian leaders were faithful. They were loving. They represented God well, but when there were issues in the church, they were not dealt with and so... False teaching spread and dissension spread and disunity spread. Both are important for leaders in the church to look after ourselves in our walk, but also care for those around us. And he warns them that there are these wolves coming and there are false teachers who will come in. Even some of them will stand up and begin speaking twisted things, things that are untrue. but the Holy Spirit had given these leaders a role. If any of you are leaders in a church, right? God, the spirit of the living God, has given you a role in his church. It isn't just some fancy little position in a club, but the church belongs to God. And he bought it with an immeasurable price. It says it was obtained with his own blood. Imagine that your, your neighbor or your friend has this like priceless family heirloom, right? This thing, you know, came over on a boat like 200 years ago and they've just kept it in their families. Only three of them left in the world. And they said, well, we're going on a trip and we want you to look after this family artifact. Or imagine that this family has a beloved family pet And this dog is just like the best dog you've ever met, okay? Like they've had plenty of dogs before, but this one is just the best dog they've ever had. They love it dearly. And they ask you, hey, we're going on a trip. Can you please take care of my dog? Whether it's this priceless family heirloom or this beloved family pet, I bet that we would do our best to take good care of that which was entrusted to us. Because those things are irreplaceable. They're valuable. They're beloved. And and that is only a fraction. Only a fraction of God's view of his church. Like God has established his church by the sacrifice of his own blood, his own son. Like we're here because of what Jesus did. The church belongs to God. He bought it with an immeasurable price. And so those who lead the church, there's an immense burden there. Because the church is valuable. God's people are valuable. Bought by the very blood of Jesus. Continuing on in verse 31, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It says, be alert. Remember my ministry among you. And he, he hands them over to something. He hands them over saying, look, you have the living God and you have the gospel. The word of grace, right? You have the living God and the word of grace. That is what is able to build you up. That is what is able to change you. That is what is what is able to give you an inheritance. That the gospel is, is central to the church. Like it's not just some like, like fancy little theological idea that's part of our system. It is central to everything that we are. It is what changes us. It is what grows us. Our hope is in the gospel that, that Christ has provided inheritance for us, that one day we get to experience eternity with Him, new heavens, new earth. That is given to us as a gift in the gospel, in Christ's sacrifice for us. Without it, we have nothing. And so He he calls these believers to cling to the gospel, to stand with their God. Verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown that by working hard this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It seems that the Apostle Paul knew that as these false teachers would come into the church, they would try to slander his character. They would try to paint a picture of Paul that, man, he was just out for his own interests. Don't listen to what that guy said. And he reminds them, he says, look, even though I, I could have just sat back and you guys could have supported me financially, I worked hard for my own needs. I worked hard so that I could give to others. And he gives a quotation of Jesus, which is interesting because it's not a quotation we find in the Gospels. It seems that this is a quote it was in the living memory of the church, uh, just as John said, or just as it is said in uh, John twenty-one twenty-five, that there are many things that Jesus said that aren't recorded. But for Paul, who was, a, who was a tent maker, he worked with his hands to provide for his ministry. He found greater happiness in working hard and giving to others than sitting back and letting people give to him. The last uh, three verses. It says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This final scene, right by this ship, Paul is about to leave. And they are weeping. They have one last embrace, and they kneel down to pray. And this isn't just a little, okay, we need to have a little quick closing prayer because this is kind of awkward. But they are are on their knees before the living God, their king. The one they've been serving for so long together, the one that united them all. And that's how the scene ends. Kneeling together before the king, embracing, kissing, knowing that they won't see each other again. But there is good news because we have a little bit more of the story than we have here in the book of Acts. And in Revelation chapter 2, which was probably written at least a couple decades after these events took place, in the revelation that John has, Jesus actually addresses the Ephesian church. And they were not without fault. Uh, in that passage, but this is what the Lord says about Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Like Decades later, the church in Ephesus was still being diligent to resist false teachers and to endure suffering patiently, just as Paul had encouraged them to do so. I think that's, that's really encouraging to see that long game playing out in Ephesus. So when I was a senior in high school, we moved uh, from Hollis to Buxton. No, sorry, sorry, other way around. Buxton to Hollis. So we made the great pilgrimage across the River Jordan to the Promised Land. And so a lot of our, basically all of our stuff went into boxes, right? That's kind of what you do when you move. All your stuff goes into boxes. And then a year later, I went away to college. And so more of my stuff went into boxes. And then when I came back from college, I got married and I went out on my own. And even more stuff went into boxes. And you know, my family, we live in an apartment. We don't have a shed. We don't have a basement. We have a garage, but we try to keep the car in there. So my parents' basement has turned into our storage unit, which many of you who have adult children, you know a thing or two about this, right? And so as we are collaborating on this storage unit uh, thing we have going on, I had to open old boxes. Because we can't just have all the boxes in there, all the stuff down there. We need to prioritize. And it was really interesting is some boxes I would open up. And these were objects that, that back in like 2014, 2015, I put in a box. And they were immeasurably valuable to me. And I open it up and I go, what a bunch of garbage. <laughs> you know? Um, for example, I was in Model United Nations for four years in high school. At the time, it felt like a massive part of my life. And so I saved every note, every scrap of paper from that program, put it in a box, and I was like, this is this wonderful treasure of memories I'm going to share with my kids someday. And then I opened it up and went, okay, I'm going to save like a couple things, but I am never going to open those notebooks and these notes and scraps again, all right? And, and they got chucked. What was once an immeasurable treasure, opened it up, it was really worthless to me. On the flip side, there were toys they were put away when I was a kid. That, you know, obviously I hadn't played with in a long time, but now I'm opening some of these boxes and I go, I've played with this when I was little, and now I get to let my kids play with it. Something that that if you'd asked me as a teenager was absolutely worthless, I had no interest in, is now an immeasurable treasure. And this is kind of what happens when Christ comes into our lives. He changes our value system. There are certain elements of how we live and how we think and what we want that just radically shift. What we once strove for, and was the purpose of our life. No, we're not, we're not really pursuing that anymore. And then be elements of the Christian life that we once scoffed at. We said, well, why would I want to go to church Which, with a bunch of weird church people? What I want to waste half my weekend, you know, going to a service where I have to sit in a chair, and yet as we grow in Christ, we go, no, this is an immeasurable gift. This is valuable. This is something to treasure. There's so many ways that that plays out in the Christian life that our values are changed. Some things are not worth as much to us, and some are worth far more to us as Christ works in and through us. Jesus radically changes our value system. We see this in Paul's speech to the Ephesian leaders. He notes how he lived, labored, and suffered to be with the church and to share the good news. He endured much just to be with God's people and to share truth with others. And in verse 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value. You know, we often as people uh, tend to care a lot about our self-preservation. And I'm not saying that we should be reckless, okay? Our, our lives should indeed be valued, but he saw value in his life and how his life could be offered in service to God, not just in preserving his own desires, his own trajectory for his life. In fact, God kind of dealt with that swiftly uh, on the road to Damascus. He was even willing to leave these people that he loved. Why? Because God was calling him onward. And that's tough. That's tough, right? You spend time with a group of people, you build a community. And then to leave that, why? Because God had plans for him to serve elsewhere, to spread the good news elsewhere. That must have been difficult. In verse 28, he recognizes the value of God's people being based on a high purchase price. And before we put our trust in Christ, we don't really realize how valuable God's people are. The love that God has for his people. You know, sometimes God's people can be annoying, right? Yes, they can be difficult. We have our problems. I'm not naming names, okay? But that's just life in community. But if you're part of God's church, You are extremely valuable to him, and so we should be valuable to one another. That's a big value change right there. Verse 32 speaks of an inheritance. It's not an earthly inheritance. We kind of talked a bit about that last week, right? God's great plan for us isn't that we would all have three-bedroom homes. But he has a wonderful eternal inheritance for us. New heavens, new earth, reigning with him forever, provided by Jesus in verses 33 through 35, he makes the point that he didn't covet people's stuff. He wasn't looking to get rich by his work among them. But it was all about working hard to give to others because it's better to give than receive. Right? That's something we're trying to practice today with Neighbors Helping Neighbors. And just one small step for us as a community to practice giving to those around us. I think there are many figures throughout church history that display this well. A mindset of not getting bogged down in in all the things that we tend to value in this life. But valuing the church, valuing the mission, valuing others. Living like Jesus. That's something we should all be striving for. We must ask ourselves the question, what is our value system? And we can use questions like this to kind of get to the root. What do we spend our money on? What do we worry about? What are our goals? How do we spend our time? These are questions that kind of begin to pick away at what do we value? What are our priorities? And I don't know what you guys value exactly. I'm not in your heads. I have a hard enough time just trying to figure out what's going on in my own head. (laughs) But here's one thing I do know. Being in a place like this, pretty much all of us have been influenced by this wonderful thing called capitalism, right? It's kind of the whole basis of our economy. It's a big part of the Western world. And capitalism puts a dollar sign on everything, right? Everything has a dollar sign. Those dollar signs keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger lately, but they're still there. So we tend to view our time and our abilities as worth in dollar signs, but people are willing to pay for our labor. We even may begin to view parenting in terms of what we can obtain for our kids, whether that's toys or experiences or securities that we can buy. We tend to view happiness in terms of owning something or being able to finally afford something. We say, man, I'm really going to be happy when I can afford to go to Disney World every year. Or I'm really going to be happy when I can have my dream car. Or I'm really going to be happy when I can afford not to work as much. We really tend to frame our values and our whole life in dollar signs. To varying degrees and in different ways. But I think Jesus... Really challenges that. Because value in the kingdom of God is completely different. The the story of Christianity, what we find in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, as it begins to speak to who we are, is that we are vapors. We're a mist, like, like our lives are short. They're short. And the more time we spend in this life, the shorter we realize our lives are, the more our lives are marked by death. But if our trust is in Christ, if we belong to him, we are vapors en route to a new world. That this life is the smallest iota of what is our life. It's the smallest piece of the rest of our story. And there's a lot of implications of that, but one of them is there's a very short time for the people around us to put their trust in Jesus, to find him as their inheritance, to find him as their immeasurable treasure. I think this is why Jesus can say something like he does in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like pretty much all the sayings of Jesus, that's a difficult one to swallow. I find it difficult to swallow. And I think I I had a very broken view of of this saying in the past because I used to to just frame it in terms of riches, go, well, man, I really, really want earthly riches. (laughs) Like I want money, I want stuff. And yet Jesus is saying that I should really want riches in a different place. So somehow I need to like transfer my desire for riches to riches I can't see. I don't really think that's what he's going for. I don't think Jesus is just trying to create a new form of greediness. He's trying to show us that our value system is just completely off. It's just completely off. It's not like, well, if I suffer well in this life, you know, for the sake of Christ, and I'm a good enough person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then I'm going to get a really big house in heaven. That whole, like, everyone gets a mansion thing ain't in the Bible. Okay, it's based off the KJV. It's not a good translation in that, sing- in that instance. Okay, we don't have a promise of a bunch of material stuff. Like, oh, if I, you know, if I drive a junky car here for the sake of Christ, then I, then I get a Cadillac in heaven. All right, like, like that is just messed up. That, that's our capitalism slipping into our brains again. We view everything in terms of dollar signs. Those are not the values of the kingdom. It's all about the gospel that as we trust in Christ more and more and more, we are united to his story. It's no longer about our personal uh, objectives and goals, but we're united in Christ and that he is transforming this world and we get to take part in it. And that is what is valuable and that is what matters. We get a new view of the church. That the church consists of the people that Jesus gave everything for. A new view of our lives that we, as Romans 12 says, we are to be living sacrifices. That our lives are actually something we can offer up to God in service to help save others. We have a new view of our home. That we are actually sojourners in this life. And we might have a wonderful community. We might have a wonderful building that we live in. But our real inheritance is one to come. We have a new view of material objects. That they are not something that others need to give to us to make us happy. But rather they are something for us to give to others. Jesus radically changes our value system. And if we find that our values don't line up with the kingdom's values, which every day I wake up and I feel that my values really don't fully line up with the kingdom's values, the answer is to draw closer to Christ, not heap more guilt on yourself. It's not, well, man, I, I, really, I really just need to value the kingdom of God better. No, it's that we draw closer to Jesus. And the closer we are with him, the more we walk with him, His ways are more valuable, and our ways seem more and more worthless. Paul, knowing the Ephesian church would face difficulties, especially false teachers, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. That's what it comes down to. Our inheritance, our hope, hey, our our center of being changed and built up, it's all in the gospel and the God who saves us. Jesus radically changes our value system. Let's pray. Lord, help us, help me to more and more be close to you and to have your values rather than the ones I was raised in, the ones of my culture around me, the ones that my heart produces. More and more, may the things that we want be what you want, And that which we are willing to sacrifice for be your ministry of drawing people to yourself. We need your help, Lord. Powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.